Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about pregnancy after infertility treatment. How to relax and enjoy. I love Dr. Ali Domar's warmth and wisdom. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. After infertility, the central theme during pregnancy is it's really hard to trust your body because your body didn't help, didn't make you pregnant easily. And so women going through infertility really start doubting their body's capability of doing anything. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletters. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the new resources we add to our site each week. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on the top right side of any page of our website at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring is pleased to offer their IVF Greenlight program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, go to their website, ivfgreenlight.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of prospective sperm donors to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with 21 offices and I'm sorry, 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. They maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. In 1997, the first embryo adoption program in the world began. It was begun by Snowflake. It was called Snowflake's Embryo Adoption, and it was started by Nightlight Christian Adoptions. Now more than 450 babies have been born as a result of direct embryo donation through Snowflake's. Today we're going to be talking about pregnancy after infertility, how to relax and enjoy. This interview will be with Dr. Allie Domar. She is the Executive Director of the Domar Center for Mind-Body Health. She is a Senior Staff Psychologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and she is the author of Finding Calm for the Expectant Mom, Tools for Reducing Stress, Anxiety, and Mood Swings During Your Pregnancy. Welcome, Dr. Domar, to Creating a Family. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate it. Well, 
most people who have tried for a while uh, to get pregnant, and particularly those who have experienced infertility and, and infertility treatment, have a certain set of expectations uh, when they finally get pregnant. And these expectations involve uh, bliss, involve happiness, involve relaxation, involve um, marital closeness, involve all the things that they've had all these years to, to imagine and to dream of and to hope for. Um, is this the usual experience for, for, for most pregnant women or women who have experienced infertility? Well, that's actually it's a great question because that's actually where I, I wrote the book. I mean, yes, I do see women who are pregnant not after fertility treatment, but probably the majority of the patients I see who are pregnant got pregnant after treatment. And I, I hear pretty much the same thing from every one of them is as you go through infertility treatment, there's this expectation that, like, that carrot hanging out in front of you, the goal, the goal is to get pregnant with a healthy baby. And there's a feeling that if you could just get pregnant with a healthy baby, everything in your life would be great. And I think the reason I see so many pregnant women after infertility is that pregnancy can be hard. It doesn't matter what you went through to get there. It doesn't matter how much you want this baby and love this baby you know, the physical and psychological symptoms of pregnancy can be very challenging. Yeah, and, and, and the thing that's, uh, that I, I don't know if, it's, uh, if this would be an accurate statement, but I wonder if people who have worked longer and harder to get pregnant have had more time to build up some of these perhaps unrealistic expectations. I think so. I think that's exactly right. I think when you, you know in effect, fantasize about something you're working incredibly hard to get. The fantasy means that it will be one of the best experiences of your life. I think a lot of people, women, when they're younger, feel that way about their weddings. Like, oh, if I could just meet Mr. Right and, you know, and pick the perfect spot for the wedding. And that you see, I've seen patients who got so stressed out planning their wedding and and didn't even enjoy the wedding itself because they were so stressed out. And I think with pregnancy, women are caught off guard. Yeah, and I think also our society doesn't, uh, at least in advance, until you are pregnant, doesn't necessarily do a lot of uh, do a very good job of talking about some of the the downsides of pregnancy, particularly the emotional downsides. Um, do you see that as well? Absolutely. I mean, the fact is, if someone's going through infertility, no one is going to dare, hopefully, hopefully dare say, "Oh my God, you know, you're so lucky. Pregnancy's awful." That's, that's just not a nice thing to do. And so I think a lot of women go into pregnancy thinking this will be the best nine months of my life. And if you actually think about in society the words we use to describe pregnancy, if you, you, know, if you ask people, you know, what are the words most likely to describe pregnancy, you'll hear, you know, radiance, glow, Madonna, you know, the most serene time of my life. But if you actually Google the words associated with pregnancy, you get nausea, fatigue, hemorrhoids, things like yeah. that. So I think I think the reality of pregnancy is very different from the fantasy. Are pregnancies after fertility treatment more stressful than pregnancies that occur naturally? Yes. The research has shown that women who are pregnant after infertility treatment report a lot more anxiety. The stakes are Why higher. is that? The stakes Why are higher. I mean, I I remember actually in fact a patient of mine this is like 20 years ago got pregnant after IVF and she had some complications of her pregnancy, and, and because things were so tenuous, I went with her 
for the ultrasound with a high-risk obstetrician, and the obstetrician asked her, because he recognized me, if she had gotten pregnant through IVF, and she said yes. And I said to him later, not with the patient in the room, I said, why did you ask her that question? And he said, because if she had gotten pregnant easily, we wouldn't pull out all the stops to try to save this pregnancy. He said, but this woman, it took her two years. This is her you know, third or fourth IVF cycle. We're going to do everything we can. Um, so I think people do have a different feeling about pregnancy when you've worked that hard to get it. I know you're not a medical doctor, but is there some evidence that says that that you've seen some research on whether pregnancies after fertility treatment are in fact uh, more risky, are 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 at, at greater risk of losing uh, the, the pregnancy? Well, you know, the miscarriage rate after like IVF treatment, I think, pretty much reflects uh, the age of the woman. Or and you know, I think I don't think the miscarriage rate necessarily is a lot higher. The ectopic pregnancy rate is higher after infertility treatment. And certainly the rate of complications and the rate of C-sections is much higher in women who've gotten pregnant through IVF. But you also have to remember a lot of these pregnancies are in, in women that are older. A lot of them are twin pregnancies. And so, and, and again, you know, if you're an obstetrician and your patient's in labor, you know, and you knew this was her third IVF cycle, you're probably going to move to a C-section faster. That's, yeah, and I think there is probably some evidence that supports that as well. All right, let's talk about some of the typical feelings that that women have and perhaps more exacerbated in women who have uh, gone through treatment or have tried many years to get pregnant. Uh, let's start with the charming mood swings uh, <laughs> that uh, we um, that we hear about and, and probably have experienced. Are mood swings a part of a normal pregnancy? Absolutely, yes. And, you know, who's to say how much of it is hormonal and how much of it is lack of sleep and how much of it is the emotional impact that your life is changing or the psychological adjustment to the fact that you're not really in control of your body? I mean, there are so many reasons why someone should have mood swings during pregnancy. I mean, I think we attribute it to hormones, but as a psychologist, I can sort of take a step back and say there are probably lots of different reasons why women have mood swings while they're pregnant. Well, yeah, and you're right. We do we do attribute them to hormones, and perhaps we use that as an excuse <laughs> um, because uh, that's uh, and and because that's the easier thing to say than as opposed to the stress. Um, we've got a question from the audience, and she is wondering. She has um, it's long, so I'm going to summarize it. She wants to know that she is not yet pregnant, uh, and she is not anticipating um, this to be stressful because this is what she has been trying for. Should, be, should, she be, should she shift her expectations because she is going through fertility treatment? You know, my husband calls me a pathological optimist, and so I would say if someone is going to go into a pregnancy or hopefully into a pregnancy feeling really upbeat and excited and expecting the pregnancy is going to be easy, and there's no harm in, in, in doing that as long as you also sort of tuck in the back of your head that it may not be as easy as you hope. But, you know, most women have normal, healthy, you know, complication-free pregnancies. I just don't want someone going into it thinking I'm going to feel perfect and ecstatic for nine months and then suddenly wake up nauseous one morning and feel like, you know, they're, they're, the world has dropped out from under them. You know, there are well, I... lots of women who love to be pregnant. There are lots of women who just, feel like it was the best nine months of their life, and hopefully this person is going to have that experience. 
Well, you know, I don't think it's the nausea that, or maybe, maybe I'm being naive, but I don't think it's the nausea that that undermines us because that much everybody. I mean, that's the trope for all. No, of, no, you, I actually, you know. I, dis- I disagree. I think that Do in you? fact, okay. I've had I've had so many patients. I just had one recently who, you know, was ecstatic to be pregnant. I mean, just like literally, like running around hugging everybody when she found out, and <laughs> she had. You know, not just nausea for the first trimester, but she was pretty nauseous and vomiting for the whole pregnancy. And, you know, it, it gets to you after a while. So well, I, I think true. you, you, I think you, and I remember with both of my, my children, I think I went into it expecting to be nauseous because my mother had been nauseous. But I don't think anything can prepare you to feeling as awful as you do for so many weeks at a time. So I think people really underestimate. People, are, I think, are not as empathic to somebody who's that nauseous during pregnancy as perhaps they need to be. It's like having a stomach flu for 12 weeks. And for some yeah, women, or longer. I mean, as I said, or longer. I mean, for some women, they don't feel nauseous at all. There's some women who feel nauseous their whole pregnancy. There's, you know, for my first pregnancy, I never threw up. I was just nauseous for my second pregnancy. I ended up being hospitalized because I couldn't stop throwing up. So, you know, every pregnancy is different. But I think if someone's feeling nauseous during their pregnancy, we should not underestimate how much that that can affect them mentally and physically. Yeah. And as you pointed out, as well as affecting their sleep. Uh, yes. And uh, maintaining our uh, a, a healthy emotional state, you know, sleep is crucial for that. But we'll come, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, what does the research show about the effect of stress on the mother as well as on the baby, and, and I'm sure there's separate research on both of those. So, um, what do we know about the effect of stress? Let's start with on the on the mother and as well as on the pregnancy, and then we'll we'll talk second about the effect of stress on the baby. Well, you know, we we know that you know high levels of stress during pregnancy are are not good for anybody. I mean, first of all, for the mom, it's just unpleasant to feel stressed, and research has shown that when someone is really stressed, I mean, you know. The, the big sort of thing that we look out for is depression because depression during pregnancy is associated with not great health habits. I mean, women may not eat well. They may be more likely to do drugs or alcohol. They may not exercise adequately. Um, and all those things are going to be harmful for her and the baby. And so it's to everybody's advantage to work to reduce stress levels, you know, during pregnancy as much as we can. Okay, and then... What, uh, is there any evidence that would say that uh, uh, extreme stress or just normal stress uh, endangers a pregnancy? It can endanger the pregnancy. The problem is if, if a woman is very anxious or depressed during her pregnancy and then her child develops anxiety or depression, what we don't know is was it because mom was depressed or anxious during the pregnancy or is it because that child has an increased genetic risk because its mom has it? Well, yeah, that's a that's a yeah, very good point. Unless you tease right, out, so what like, do you we... look at surrogacy or donor egg, which is a way to tease it out. I have not seen that research yet. All right. So, what do we know from the research about the effect of the mother's stress on the fetus or on the baby? Well, as I said, we can't really tease it out very easily because if the child develops symptoms, we don't know if it's because of exposure or genetics. But we do know that high levels of stress are associated with much poor health habits in the mom. You know, certainly reduced quality of life for the mom. She may or may not, you know, she may gain too much weight or not enough weight. 
either of which are bad for the baby and for her. So, you know, it's to everyone's best interest to figure out ways to for a woman to learn stress management strategies before and during her pregnancy. All right, so that's a great segue into let's talk about some of the tips that uh, and, and stress management techniques um, that a woman can use during her pregnancy and, quite frankly, after her pregnancy because parenting is not always a walk in the park either. But uh, for, this, uh, for the purposes of this interview, let's talk about uh, pregnancy. So what are, and I know you've got a lot of them, and you might want to break them down into sections, and that would be fine. So basically, whenever I teach stress management strategies to any patient, I break them, I separate the physical strategies with the emotional or the cognitive strategies. And physical strategies, you know, number one is relaxation techniques. You know, relaxation techniques work in the moment. Relaxation techniques work in the long run. So if you do a relaxation technique on a regular basis, within a week or two, you have what's called a carryover effect, and you start feeling more relaxed and less anxious throughout the day. You know, sleep is an enormous problem for pregnant women. My colleague Jody Mendel published a paper last year, last year showing that women during every trimester of pregnancy had problems sleeping. And so, you know, if you're not getting enough sleep, that predisposes you to depression. It predisposes you just to feel lousy. And so getting a decent night's sleep needs to be a big goal for women who are pregnant, no matter where they are in their pregnancy. And because anxiety tends to keep women up at night, I call it the midnight imp. Um, relaxation techniques are a great thing to practice during the day to lower your baseline level, but also to practice at night when you can't sleep to help you get back to sleep. Okay, so relaxation, focusing on making a goal of getting a decent amount of sleep, enough sleep. And, and what do we recommend for pregnant women? How much sleep should they be aiming for? You know what? the amount of sleep you should be aiming for is the amount of sleep your body needs. And so, you know, I, I literally have a patient right now who's in bed at 8 o'clock at night and she sleeps straight through till 7 the next morning. So clearly her body needs 11 hours of sleep. The rule of thumb is gauge what time you should go to bed by how rested you feel in the morning. If your alarm clock goes off and you're roused out of a deep sleep, it means you didn't get enough sleep. If you're waking up before your alarm goes off and you feel pretty good, it means you're going to bed at the right time. Now, the problem with pregnancy is that might happen for two days, and on the third day, all of a sudden, you need to go to bed earlier. Because, you know, I, I tell patients all the time, your body is working so hard to build a baby that sometimes it just needs you to rest more and to sleep more. And so nine hour, eight or nine hours might be fine this week, but maybe you need ten hours next week. Well, and there's also the thing that you know that both from a physical discomfort standpoint, standpoint as well as, as you pointed out, um, the anxiety that, that, that just a typical normal anxiety that comes with, uh, with pregnancy might be interrupting your sleep. So you need to, on the front end, plan on more hours so that in case you are disrupted through physical discomfort, anxiety, or whatever, you still end up with a healthy amount of sleep. Absolutely. In fact, one thing we people don't talk enough about is how often pregnant women need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. And so a woman may be exhausted and fall asleep, and then two hours later she wakes up because she has to pee. She gets up to pee, that wakes her up, and then she lies in bed for a few hours worrying. And so relaxation techniques are a great tool to use to help her get back to sleep. 
Relaxation is a, uh, uh, we've talked about a couple of tips for getting a decent night's sleep. Relaxation practice during the day, and then also, as you mentioned, relaxation techniques practice in the middle of the night when you're, um, when the, the goblins of your mind are playing tricks on you and, make, and, and increasing your anxiety. And we've also talked about um, front end, uh, adding time on the front end to uh, anticipate that you might wake up in the middle of the night, and that takes some of the pressure off of waking up in the middle of the night because you're not laying there going, I've got to go to sleep, I've got to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can say, well, I've got plenty of time because I've already, you know, I went to bed an hour earlier. So those are two techniques for getting a good night's sleep. What are some others? We also teach our patients what we are called mini relaxations, which is in effect, based on diaphragmatic breathing. It's almost like a sigh, taking a slow, deep breath. We advise to try breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth. And those are great things to use in the middle of the night as well. You don't have to do a 20-minute meditation to help you get drowsy. Sometimes just a couple of minutes of just doing some mini relaxations um, are enough to get you back to sleep. Yes, uh, yeah, that's uh, absolutely. Any other tips for a good night uh, for helping. Um, are there uh, certain foods that are uh, sop fork? The best word I ever learned from Beatrice Potter, I might add. Um, or <laughs> you know, in terms the, of the uh, are there foods or are supplements that are, uh, and obviously if you're pregnant, you're going to run everything through your doctor before, um, before you try it, particularly supplements. Anything along those lines that, that uh, is helpful? I, I wouldn't recommend any supplements other than a prenatal vitamin unless your obstetrician or a nurse midwife specifically recommends it. Um, I, I think in terms of getting a good night's sleep, you need to look at, you know, one thing that most pregnant women are advised to do is to get try to exercise every day for about half an hour, you know, to get the blood flowing, to keep her in good cardiovascular shape, but it'll also tire her out. And so maybe by bedtime she's more tired and she'll fall asleep more easily. Um, you also want to watch your fluid intake later in the evening because if you're drinking a ton of water, an hour or two before you go to bed, then you're going to have to get up more often to pee. And so if, you know, you have guidelines on how much water to drink, you might want to do it earlier in the day so that you're not having to get up as much at night. A lot of pregnant women have issues with leg cramps, and sometimes, you know, messing around with different foods or, you know, things like Gatorade that replace electrolytes can help with leg cramps. Um, asking your partner to give you a back rub before you go to bed can reduce some of the muscle tension in your back. Getting very creative with pillows as you get bigger in your pregnancy, you know, so that your your belly is supported. A lot of pregnant women say they just can't get comfortable at night. And so you really want to be creative with back rubs and pillows and whatever you need to do to get into a position where you think you'll be able to fall asleep. You are listening to an interview with Dr. Ali Domar author of Finding Calm for the Expectant Mom, Tools for Reducing Stress, Anxiety, and Mood Swings During Your Pregnancy. This is with Creating a Family. Our mission at Creating a Family is to provide unbiased, medically accurate education and support for those touched by infertility. You can find all of our resources on our website, creatingafamily.org, and in specific, our A to Z infertility guide uh, is where we house all of our extensive resources. You can find that on our website, the horizontal menu across the top, hover over it, and then click on, hover over infertility and click on A to Z resource guide. 
you mentioned, and I imagine this would also fall into some of your physical strategies for coping with the stress and anxiety of, of pregnancy. You mentioned exercise. We got a question from uh, Liz. She said, I've always used exercise to reduce stress, but now that I'm six weeks pregnant after three rounds of IVF, I'm afraid to do the more rigorous exercise routine than I'm used to, and I'm feeling pretty stressed. Um, she's not alone. I think that uh, uh, the, uh, there are definitely women who have used uh, extensive uh, or um, rigorous, as, as Liz calls it, uh, heavier workouts. Uh, to uh, cope with stress and the stress of infertility as well as just the stress of life. And uh, Liz is not doing her regular routine now. Um, She doesn't say whether or not that's because she was recommended not to, uh, it was recommended that she not to, or if she's made that decision. So any thoughts for somebody like Liz who feels like her regular exercise routine is not something that she should be doing? Well, I think for someone like Liz, one has to stop and say, is this because her physician has said to her she shouldn't be exercising, which is a frequent recommendation if you have any bleeding or spotting during pregnancy, or is it a fear on your own that you can't exercise while you're pregnant? And this, you know, that's a question she has to direct to her physician. You know, in general, if someone is exhibiting symptoms at the high-risk pregnancy, her physician will probably tell her not to exercise. But the vast majority of pregnant women are actually encouraged to exercise. I mean, the baby's not going to fall out. Once the baby implants, it's there to stay. Um, And so if the obstetrician has no concerns about exercise, there's no reason she can't, you know, do a moderate exercise program. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, going bungee jumping or horseback riding or downhill skiing because you don't want to do anything that, you know, increases the risk of a fall. But, you know, if her obstetrician's okay with it, I would probably guess that he or she would be thrilled for any of their pregnant women to, you know, to continue to do their normal exercise routine. Most of the OBs that we refer our patients to after they get pregnant say, in effect, whatever you were doing before you got pregnant, you can do after you get pregnant, other than things that could involve a fall. Okay. Well, that's excellent to know. All right. And and why is exercise considered so uh, – because it didn't used to be. And back in the day, uh, particularly running um, was not encouraged, or the more vigorous – I mean, walking was always encouraged, but the more vigorous forms of exercise were not. Um, so what has changed the thinking of, of, of OBGYNs now? I mean, I think a lot of things have changed, I think, you know, OBGYNs. Number one is research showing that, you know, moderate exercise for most women is safe during pregnancy. I think the second thing is this epidemic of obesity that we're seeing in this country. And I don't, there was a news report recently that the number of maternal deaths in our country is going up, and they're guessing it's because there are so many morbidly obese women who are getting pregnant. And so if exercise can help, you know, keep weight gain moderate during pregnancy, that tends to make the medical community feel much safer about the pregnancy. Exercise is also a phenomenal stress reliever. And, you know, in my opinion, there are a lot of stressed pregnant women out there. And, you know, if they can take a walk for half an hour or go for a bike ride or go for a swim, it may very well reduce their stress level, which, as I said earlier, is really good for both her and her baby. So what are the physical strategies? We've talked about relaxation techniques, including the many relaxations you've talked about, um, uh, sleep. We've talked about exercise. Are there some other physical strategies that you recommend for pregnant women to use to 
uh, up the enjoyment of their pregnancy and reduce the stress? Yeah, the, the last one actually is is nutrition and food and food intake. And, you know, I, I remember when I was pregnant reading the chapter on in what to expect when you're expecting on nutrition, and I was so horrified at all the rules and regulations about what you should and shouldn't eat. I remember showing it to my obstetrician who told me to rip that chapter out of the book. Uh, because the fact is the nutritional needs of a fetus are actually relatively minor. And women worry a lot about what they eat while they're pregnant. And so to my rule of thumb is, you know, eat good food. Your baby's going to get enough, but eat good food. You know, the issue, of course, for a lot of women, especially during the first trimester, is the issue of nausea and vomiting. And it's very hard to eat good food when nothing appeals to you. I have a patient right now who has an enormous aversion to lettuce, which you think of as so innocuous. I mean, lettuce doesn't even have a flavor. But she literally runs screaming from the room if there's lettuce around it. And, again, there's no aroma to lettuce. Um, so, yeah, but I, that's I think an unusual that one. It's a very unusual. Oh, I, 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 yeah, I could list the most unusual versions in my career to, to patients of mine have reported. But I think what you need to do is to, you know, in effect, list the things that you can't tolerate. You know, for most pregnant women, the smell of coffee, the smell of meat, the smell of any kind of seafood or fish tend to be hugely aversive. Um, and then once you've identified, and again, what may be aversive to you now may be actually appealing to you in a week. So you've you got to do this frequently. But it's pretty obvious what really turns you off. But what few people do when they're pregnant is to actually visualize what's appealing. And so what you want to do is think, huh, is something lemony appealing to me? Is something salty appealing to me? Is something minty appealing to me? I mean, and ginger is a very common sort of stomach soother. You know, my older daughter literally is composed of Dunkin' Donuts chocolate chip muffins. Because when I was pregnant and I was so nauseous and feeling so awful, the only thing that appealed to me were Dunkin' Donuts chocolate chip muffins. And, you know, every, and I was so worried that this kid was not going to get adequate nutrition, and she's 5'8". So, you know, clearly <laughs> clearly the donuts, the muffins did something for her. But you want to visualize. You know, you, you can have someone who's a chocoholic who has this amazing craving for lemon tarts. And I think if you can close your eyes and visualize, for a lot of women, you know, salty things like potato chips and pretzels, orange soda, strange things like that can actually be appealing. And so if you are worried about, you know, not being able to eat or drink anything, just close your eyes and visualize as I said, the, the salty, the minty, the tart, those tend to be more appealing when you're nauseous or vomiting. And, and the bottom line I hear is is don't become the food police and don't let others around you become the food police. Uh, eat good food. I mean, I think you you would be recommending, you know, aim for the for healthy food when you can, but don't get overly worried. I, what I'm hearing you say is don't get overly worried about every morsel of food coming into your mouth having to have the maximum health impact. Exactly. I, mean, I think people need to dial back. Although, you know, there are a couple of things. Obviously, alcohol is not recommended in any form during pregnancy because no one knows what the threshold is. You know, is it possible that one drink a week is safe? Yeah, it's possible. Is it possible that five drinks a week are safe? Yeah, it's possible. But no one's going to do the study to see what the threshold is. The other thing you want to look out for um, is obviously mercury in fish, so they recommend that women limit how much fish they eat per week. And then finally, women do have to be careful of listeria and products that could contain listeria. 
like unpasteurized cheeses and um, unheated meats, like bologna and salami and things like that. So those are things you have to watch out for. But, you know, the rest, most obstetricians are like, you know, eat what appeals to you. I, I personally think the female body is very clever that, you know, coffee is not a great thing to be drinking when you're pregnant. And so an aversion to coffee makes perfect sense. Yeah, but how are you going to explain that chocolate chip uh, muffin thing? (laughs) (laughs) And the really funny thing is, my older daughter is not a huge chocolate chip muffin fan, but my younger daughter is. So, (laughs) yeah, you never know. Yeah, Yeah, you never know. That's exactly right. Uh, Here's a question we've gotten from, and I think I'm pronouncing her her name correctly, Raina. She said, I'm five months pregnant, and I've honestly become a huge hypochondriac. I'm paranoid of every ache and pain or anything. It took us four years to get pregnant, and I am so worried that we will lose this baby. Um, Thoughts for for this? I don't think Raina is alone. Um, uh, Maybe being more honest. No, she's not alone at all. To identify herself as perhaps being a little hypochondrical, but uh, yeah, go ahead. So thoughts for Raina? First of all, Raina, I would not call you hypochondriacal because I think you're being vigilant. And I think being vigilant during a much-anticipated pregnancy is a pretty healthy, normal reaction. When you've worked that hard for something, you know, you're going to be very nervous about anything going wrong. So I would not label you a hypochondriac. I would label you vigilant, which is not a bad thing. Um, I think that after infertility... The central theme during pregnancy is it's really hard to trust your body because your body didn't help, didn't make you pregnant easily. And so women going through infertility really start doubting their body's capability of doing anything. And so many of my pregnant patients almost look in awe as they start to expand, like, wow, my body actually knows how to do this? It's amazing because, you know, I have a patient right now who is an extremely good athlete. And, you know, felt like she had total control of her body. And her body always did what she wanted. And, in fact, her body got her lots of great places in terms of, you know, athletic achievement. And then she went through infertility. And so this body that had been so dependable and so um, generous, in, in effect, suddenly became like a traitor to her. And she's had some major body issues. Well, now she's pregnant, and she's very distrustful of her body. Like, can my body really do this? Is my body really capable of producing a healthy, normal baby? And, you know, yes, it, it can. I mean, there's usually a concrete reason why you would infertility, whether it's egg issue, sperm issue, uterine issue. And once that's fixed, there's no reason to believe that you, that you and your body are not capable of producing a healthy baby. And if you're five months pregnant, it sounds like you're well over half the way there. So I think there's a difference between you know, calling your OB every hour because you sneezed versus, you know, being careful and knowing the signs and symptoms to look out for. I mean, most obstetricians give their patients a list. You know, if you have any of these symptoms or experiences, let me know. And so keep that list handy. And if you're not experiencing any of those symptoms, that should reassure you. What about the suggestion of of acknowledging up front with your um, uh, your obstetrician that you're going to be more, I'll use your word, vigilant 
and uh, talking with them ahead of time of perhaps having more frequent appointments or and having it covered by insurance or having more frequent uh, sonograms or things such as that. Is, is this an effective technique that women can use if they are feeling more, let's call it, vigilant? You know, I, I would tend to believe that every obstetrician and nurse midwife in this country is very aware that women who are pregnant after infertility treatment are going to be more vigilant. You know, I think they just know that something you have worked so hard to get to is so much more important and so much more vital that I think they they anticipate that these women will be more anxious during their pregnancy. And so, you know, I, I believe that if you feel the need to see your OB more frequently and if you feel the need to have more frequent ultrasounds, you should have an honest conversation and say, look, I'm very anxious. I need this peace of mind. And I think most obstetricians will support you on that because they don't want you to be anxious during the pregnancy. It helps once you feel the baby move. So I think for most women, you know, what they said until about 20 weeks when you haven't felt the baby move, it would be so great. One of my patients said this. It would be so great if I could have a little window. So I could just peek in and see the heartbeat and know my baby was still okay. Well, because we don't really have windows into our uteruses, um, until the baby starts kicking and you know every day the baby is okay, I don't see any harm in asking your healthcare team for reassurance. And most of the time they'll just say, come in for a heart check. You know, just come into the office when you're feeling nervous. You know, someone will bring out the, the Doppler, will listen to the baby's heart, and that maybe that's all you need for reassurance. Mm-hmm. You can actually get uh, home Doppler kits as well. You, you know, and I actually, I, I had a patient who once rented an ultrasound machine, which I thought was a really bad idea because even a highly skilled ultrasound technician sometimes has problems finding the baby's heartbeat. So, yes, you can rent a Doppler. Yeah, that's a little less intense than I had a patient end up in the emergency room because she had rented a Doppler and she couldn't find the heartbeat, and, his, and hysterics went to the hospital and the baby was fine. So, you know, the fact is, you know, once you've seen a heartbeat once or twice, your odds of having a baby go up to, I think, 96 or 97%. It's actually a, a good statistic to, to remind yourself. So yes. say that one again. Once you've heard so a I heartbeat think the, I think once. once. I think once they've heard or seen a heartbeat twice and, you know, and everything looks like it's proceeding on schedule, I think the chances of having a baby or somewhere in 96, 97% chance. So, I mean, and the fact is what I tell my patients is once you have a, a, a normal positive pregnancy test, the odds are already in your favor to have a healthy baby. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you talked about some of the physical techniques that you recommend for uh, pregnant women to use for stress and anxiety reduction. What are some other techniques? You were dividing them between physical and emotional, I believe, but, but um, right. what were some of the other techniques? So the other one is one of the other emotional ones that we call cognitive restructuring, which involves challenging automatic negative thought patterns, you know, such as I'm not going to be a good mother or I'm not ready for this or, you know, what if I screw, or I'm going to screw up or my husband and I will not be able to co-parent effectively. And these are all the thoughts that tend to go through our heads. And the idea of cognitive restructuring is to challenge these automatic negative thought patterns. Okay, and you do that by how? We have we ask patients a series of four questions. 
So question one, does this thought contribute to your stress? Yes. Question <laughs> two, yeah. yeah, heck yeah. Question two is where did you learn this thought? And these automatic negative thought patterns tend to come from two places. It either stems from something said to you a long time ago or it's your fear speaking. And so, you know, if, if a woman has a negative thought, I'm not going to be a good mom, you know, maybe it's because when, you know, she was 16, she hated babysitting. And she somehow got this message that she hated kids and she wouldn't be a good mom. Most of the time, these negative thoughts come from your fear speaking. You know, I'm going to lose, I'm going to have a miscarriage, my baby's not going to be normal, etc. And, you know, you can, so question three is, is this a logical thought? And question four, is this thought true? And the idea is not to force yourself to come up with Pollyanna thinking, but to come up with a, you know, a, a rational thought. So if your negative thought is, you know, I'm not going to have a healthy baby, you might restructure it to, you know, I'm doing everything I can to have a healthy baby, and my doctor is very confident that things are going fine. It's not Pollyanna thinking. Those are two true statements. Well, and, and how does that differ from is it logical? Well, in order to sort of put the thought back correctly, it has to be logical and true. And you're dividing logical and true. And, and so... With the uh, negative thoughts, because, uh, you know, because the logical, you know, gets people to start thinking, like, okay, so I have this negative thought that there's something wrong with my baby. Is it logical to say that? Well, no, it's not really logical, because I don't know there's something wrong with my baby. And then is that thought true sort of forces them to, in effect, challenge that thought. It, it's not fair to yourself to have these illogical, untrue thoughts, you know, beat up on you. And that's what we do. Our minds beat up on us all the time. I keep on telling my patients that if you, if you said to your friends what your own mind says to you, you wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> Oh, that is so true. <laughs> so let's say that if, if a woman is, is ruminating on the health of her child, I'm not going to have a healthy baby, um, mm-hmm. she would first she'd go through the four-step process. One, uh, is this thought contributing to my stress? Well, duh, of course. Two, yep. um, where does it come from? Uh, and in this case, and there's, you said there were two places that, that the negative thoughts often come from. One, something said to you, uh, yep. oftentimes in your past, or two, it's your fear speaking. Well, chances mm-hmm. are good in this case it would be your fear speaking. Your biggest fear is that your, yep. the baby, something will happen to the baby. Then yep. your third question would be, is it logical? And assuming that the pregnancy is going uh, you know, according to plan, uh, no, there's probably no reason, although that's a hard one because if you're worried about it, you've convinced yourself that there's some logic to it um, because, you know, because I've, I had to go through IVF or because, you know, I, it mm-hmm. took us so long or because whatever, it will feel logical, it seems to me. But then your fourth one, is it true? Um, and that is to challenge, of, is there any evidence to support that, that have you been told anything that would give you an indication that this baby is not? Is that, how, is that the process that yes, you would... Yes, exactly uh, right, exactly right. And, and you might just come up with, I'm worried about my baby's health. You know what? That's a true and logical statement, but it's not a negative thought. It's normal. Every pregnant woman in the world worries about her baby's health. It's okay to worry about your baby's health. What's not okay is to think there's something wrong with my baby because that's what's going to torture you and keep you up at night. All right, so that's a a, a very useful and practical 
um, uh, technique that people can use. Um, do you have some others that uh, that you uh, that fall under the you would the, the emotional techniques versus the um, physical techniques? Do you have some other emotional techniques that you could recommend? Lots and lots. Um, well, one is is well, <laughs> this is what I do be for a living. Be careful. This could be a situation. To be careful what we ask for. <laughs> I, I just I just wrote a whole book on this. <laughs> Um, well, no, hang on, let me just give the name of that book, by the way, <laughs> Finding Calm for the Expectant Mom, Tools for Reducing Stress, Anxiety, and Mood Swings During Your Pregnancy. All right, go ahead. So another one is social support. And, you know, and I, I say this carefully because there's something really bizarre about the way our society interacts with a pregnant woman. And I've been writing some blogs about this because for some reason people think of a pregnant woman as being, in effect, community property. You know, that's just the touching and the offering opinions and such. Um, but social support, you know, hanging out with other healthy pregnant women can really help. So, and that's where you can complain about your hemorrhoids, and that's where you can complain about your stretch marks, and that's where you can complain about your mother-in-law being intrusive about baby names. There's something about being with people who get it that's really reassuring. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and there's so many ways that you can connect with pregnant women, both in person and online. Um, some of which combine. I, I caution you about online because <laughs> there's there's something about the anonymity of being in an anonymous chat room, for example, that people are not always truthful, or they exaggerate, or some of them aren't even pregnant. Um, I also caution you about looking at other people's Facebook posts or social media posts about their pregnancies because people post the good stuff. They post the fact that they have a flat stomach at six, well, I don't think this is good. They, they brag that their stomach is flat at 16 weeks or they brag that they're back in their skinny jeans a week after the baby was born or they show you know their $800 stroller or anything else. People don't post the bad stuff. They don't post the vaginal hemorrhoids. They don't post the middle of the night vomiting. They don't post the, you know, the being awake half the night. And so you have to be really careful about social media. You know, if you have a few honest friends who are pregnant, hang with them. And there are other uh, techniques, I mean, other places, not techniques, other places. I mean, there are so many things now. I mean, oh, there's um, prenatal yoga. There's, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. there's also, I mean, I've actually known people that have made friends with women in their obstetrician's office. I did that with my first pregnancy. There was a woman who must have been within a few days of my due date, so we saw each other every time we were in the office, and we became friends, and we would, you know, call each other and such, because you clearly have something big in common. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Literally uh, and figuratively. Excellent. I wanted to talk a little now about women who have had recurrent miscarriages. Um, that uh, many women who have uh, are, are experienced uh, infertility, um, one form of that would be recurrent miscarriages. Um, and and I really feel for them because this uh, pregnancy particularly until they get past the point where their miscarriage has occurred, is just such a stressful time. Any thoughts on what those women can do? Recurrent pregnancy loss is brutal. I just saw a patient this morning who's had three losses in the last six months. Um, And I wrote a paper, actually, on the psychological aspects of recurrent pregnancy loss, and I cannot get it published because no one seems interested in it, which is very frustrating for me. Because I don't think people really stop and think about what the psychological impact of recurrent loss is. 
And, in fact, you know, the issue is, you know, for some of those women, they get pregnant easily, and for some of those women, they get pregnant with great difficulty after treatment. Um, in either case, getting pregnant again is not necessarily a cause for celebration. It's a cause exactly. of intense anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so I think to expect yourself to be joyful and happy the day you find out you're pregnant is unrealistic. Women who've had multiple losses basically hold their breath until they've gotten past the point of their last loss. Absolutely. They absolutely do. Uh, and, and and as women will say, whether they get pregnant easily, people think, well, if you get pregnant easily, what are you worried about? It's It doesn't count unless you're able to deliver or you carry a baby to term. Exactly. That's right. So, That's right. And, 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 and the fact is, Half the time they can't figure out why women are having these losses. And so, you know, and the weird thing is, I mean, you could have had five or six losses, and the next time you get pregnant, the odds are in your favor you'll have a baby. And so many times the workup will be normal, and they'll just say, just try again. Eventually you'll have a baby. It's like Russian roulette in reverse. I know, and, and but but you're so right. That, and yes, and, and they, I'm sure that the the medical statistics are are correct, and and it probably is in your favor. But that doesn't deal with the emotional impact of continually exactly. losing pregnancy. Yeah, it's. I mean, this paper I wrote, I I was looking at you know most of the really good research is out of Europe. You know, when they follow women for months or years after a loss, I mean, they find that women five years after a loss. Many of them still think about that loss every day, um, which, you know, Absolutely. whether or not published... they had, it, it, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I published a, an article this week uh, or last week talking about the the emotional pitfall for many women when asked how many children they have mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. depending upon when in the pregnancy they've lost the child mm-hmm. or they lost the pregnancy, they are still feeling it oftentimes many years later. Mhm. Very much so. Yeah, they they yeah. you know I, I have patients that say that they literally don't get out of bed the day of you know the, the the on their due date and on the anniversary of their due date or on the anniversary of their loss. Our society is horrible at supporting women who've had a loss. And in fact, we have a, a program at Boston IVF that if a woman comes in for a prenatal ultrasound and the results are not good, either they know she's going to miscarry or they see no heartbeat or whatever that any of these women are guaranteed to see one of the psychologists within an hour. Because, you know, when you're a shrink, you see patients every hour, but it's only for 45 minutes, and so we have 10 or 15 minutes every hour. And so I'll sit down with these patients who will have just found out they're miscarrying or they have miscarried, and I'll basically talk about how they should expect to feel, but I'll also talk about all the stupid things people are going to say to them, which is just tragic. Yeah, it really is. Um, Here's a question from Whitney. She says, I am four months pregnant with twins. It has been a difficult pregnancy, and my doctor is concerned. I am feeling really guilty because my RE recommended to transfer only one embryo. I'd love any advice you can give. You know, I just had a patient go through this because her doctor and I are like transfer one, transfer one, transfer one, and she was so desperate to get pregnant that she transferred two and then had a twin pregnancy, which was complicated. But, you know, I really understand when you're going through infertility, you are so desperate to get pregnant. And, yeah, in fact, if you transfer two embryos, you're more likely to have a pregnancy than if you transfer one, but you're also more likely to have a twin pregnancy. Now, the fact is most women who deliver twins in this country 
have healthy babies. And again, so the odds are in your favor. You know, you're likely to have them a bit early. Um, if your doctor's concerned, you certainly want to follow all your doctor's recommendations. You may need to stay off your feet more. You may need to eat more. Um, you may be more nauseous or tired. I mean, you will be more nauseous and tired with a twin pregnancy. But I would honestly take guilt out of the equation because it is just human nature. When you're going through infertility, you just want to stop the pain. And, you know, you have this belief that transferring two is more likely to stop the pain. So, of course, that's what a lot of people do. Yeah, words of uh, true words of advice. Uh, good words of advice. Uh, in the remaining time, I'd like to talk about uh, treating depression and anxiety in pregnancy. Now, up to this point, it sounds to me like we've been talking about the more everyday, run-of-the-mill, common stress and anxiety, which is already exacerbated, as we've talked about, with women who have gone through fertility, infertility and gone through treatment. So what I'd like to do is shift to talk about when somebody has been diagnosed with uh, depression or anxiety disorders prior to the pregnancy or even during the pregnancy, when it's beyond the, what we would normally uh, experience, what, a woman, what we'd expect a woman to experience. So let's start by talking about antidepressants. First, I'd like to ask about uh, women who were on antidepressants prior to pregnancy. And uh, let's uh, acknowledge up front that you're not a medical doctor, and this is a question that any woman would need to ask her um, nurse midwife or uh, obstetrician. Uh, But in general, uh, what is the recommendation now for uh, taking antidepressants during pregnancy? Um, The recommendation depends on who you're talking to. And, in fact, this is one of the reasons I – one of the big reasons that I decided to write this book was this whole controversy about taking antidepressant medication during pregnancy. And, in fact, until about three or four years ago, routinely if I saw an infertility patient who, you know, was not getting better seeing me, I very casually sent her to a psychiatrist to get put on medication and then about three or four years ago, we had a high-risk obstetrician named Adam Urato come speak to our whole, all of Boston IVF, on the risks of taking SSRIs, which is the most common form of antidepressants during pregnancy. And the risks of taking medication during pregnancy really do exist. I mean, you know, it may or may not decrease the efficacy of treatment. We don't know that. But we know that women who take SSRIs are more likely to miscarry. They're more likely to have a preterm birth. Their baby is more likely to have what's called a newborn behavioral syndrome. And there's some evidence that babies who are exposed to SSRIs during pregnancy may have an increased risk of what they call the neurobehavioral disorders like autism. So, you know, these are all very scary-sounding conditions. The fact is most women who take an antidepressant during pregnancy have healthy, normal babies. So, you know, sort of the way I've pulled it all together over the last few years my feeling is I never like seeing healthy young women take medication unless they need to. And so whenever I meet somebody who's either on an SSRI or wants to go on an SSRI, you, you need to go over their history. And, you know, if there's somebody who literally can't function off medication, then clearly staying on medication during the pregnancy is going to be her best bet. But if it's somebody who, you know, has had some issues in the past, found the medication was helpful, 
you know, then you might want to say, hey, how would you feel about, you know, seeing me during the pregnancy or seeing someone do cognitive behavior therapy? Even exercise can be effective to treat depression. You also want to know who, who prescribed the antidepressant to that patient. I mean, if it was prescribed by a psychiatrist or a psychiatric nurse practitioner, I'm a whole lot more confident the patient really needed the medication. About 60% of women of childbearing age in our country who had taken SSRI got that prescription from either their OBGYN or their primary care physician, none of whom have truly the training to assess if somebody is clinically depressed and needs medication. Um, So I, I think a lot of women are taking the medication who would probably do just fine off it, receiving some other form of treatment, which doesn't have any risk factors. But that said, if somebody has a history and needs to be on medication, I would definitely support her taking her medication. And one of the things we find is that, well, to put it bluntly, infertility is depressing. And yes, it so is. often the people who are taking antidepressants are taking it to cope with the depression caused by infertility. And it seems like that would be yep. an important uh, uh, factor to understand as well in determining whether or not to continue with the antidepressant either during well, treatment. Well, the fact is there was, there's afterwards. been at least one study which has tested head-to-head antidepressants versus cognitive behavior therapy. And in that study, the cognitive behavior therapy patients did better than the patients who took the medication. So I feel very confident that if I have a patient who's going through infertility who comes to me and says she's depressed, I'm very confident. And, you know, unless she's suicidal or, or, you know, really depressed, I'm very confident saying let's start with cognitive behavior therapy and see how you do. And it's actually relatively rare for someone not to get better with cognitive behavior therapy. And is it important that the therapist that they are seeing has some understanding uh, of infertility or at this point, uh, if you are pregnant and doing this, um, is it uh, uh, just a good qualified therapist enough? Um, I would say that the cognitive behavior therapy part is probably more important. I mean, there certainly are a fair number of therapists in this country who know cognitive behavior therapy, who have some experience with infertility. Um, But I would say learning the CBT skills is probably more important than somebody knowing about infertility. Um, And you can learn the CBT skills in, you know, four to six sessions and then go see a therapist who specializes in infertility. But I think you really need – I just saw a patient this morning who's seen a therapist, and she really likes this therapist. You know, she goes every week, and she says, it feels like I'm talking to my best friend, which is great but she's not learning any coping skills or relaxation skills or any anything else that will change her way of thinking. So maybe uh, it's not an and. I mean, it's not an or. It's an and. Yes. It's the help that you need and, 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 and as well as the coping skills. You've talked about depression, but now let's talk about anxiety um, because I think that, well, sometimes the meds are the same, but sometimes they're different as well. So what about the medications for anxiety? Would, there, would that in any way be different, um, your recommendation be in any way different, depending on, on, on what, um, uh, whether it's uh, uh, the SSRI or whether it's uh, some other type of uh, anxiety med? You know, I, I think most obstetricians would probably discourage their patients from taking anti-anxiety drugs throughout their pregnancy. They would probably actually feel safer with her taking an SSRI because some of the SSRIs, have anti-anxiety properties. So I've never met an obstetrician who felt great about a patient taking anti-anxiety meds throughout their pregnancy. But I would sort of say the same thing. Before you go on meds, 
I would try cognitive behavior therapy with some relaxation techniques thrown in for good measure. Um, you know, why not start with the safest, least side effect treatment, and there's always medication as a backup. I mean, unlike it, SSRIs, anti-anxiety meds work very quickly. So how can a, how can someone tell whether or not they let's say they're pregnant and and they're experiencing a fair amount of either depression or anxiety, um, with or without? I think your recommendation is to first of all get into cognitive behavioral therapy and get into a relaxation program or a therapist who is qualified to suggest that as well. Um, if that is not, how, at what point does a woman need to uh, go see a psychiatrist or uh, start considering other options? What are the warning signs that this is beyond normal? Because as we've talked about, a normal right. pregnancy is stressful. Uh, right. So uh, and anxiety yeah, is a a, not, a, not an abnormal response. To, I think she has to have a conversation with her obstetrician or nurse midwife. I mean, I can't diagnose somebody over the phone or, you know, make blanket recommendations. I think it's a real case-by-case basis, and there certainly are some women who need to be on medication to have an acceptable quality of life during their pregnancy. But I would venture that the majority of women who are feeling anxious or depressed would do very well with cognitive behavior therapy. They would do well with exercise. There's one study that showed that partner back rubs (laughs) decrease symptoms of depression, and there's some new research on the impact of omega-3s on depression during pregnancy. There's some research on the impact of light therapy. So I tell my pregnant patients, go for a walk in the sunshine, and that alone may help you. So I would like to try the safest things first and think of medication as my backup plan. Yeah, that sounds like excellent advice. Uh, Start with, because we know that a walk in the sun uh, or a, a back massage uh, is not going to cause any harm. And quite frankly, no matter what you're feeling, will we'll do you some good, particularly that back massage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, mean. I just said to one of my patients, I think every night you should ask your husband for a back rub, and her whole face lit up. And she's like, can I tell him you said that? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> you should be writing it on a uh, prescription pad. That's yeah. right. Yeah, for any nurses who are listening to this, that's what we want you to uh, now uh, start prescribing, uh, whether you actually think we need it or not. Uh, trust me, we do need it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ali Domar, for being our guest today uh, to talk about coping with the uh, uh, stress uh, of anxiety and anxiety associated with pregnancy, particularly pregnancy after infertility, because we all want to relax and enjoy this experience that we have worked so very, very hard to achieve. Now, if you have enjoyed this show, you are going to love uh, Dr. Domar's book, you can find that book uh, at, uh, the book is titled Finding Calm for the Expectant Mom, Tools for Reducing Stress, Anxiety, and Mood Swings During Your Pregnancy. It is for sale at any of the online booksellers, Amazon, as well as the others. Uh, it is also uh, available at your independent bookstore. We do like to support our independent bookstores, so please consider getting it there. If they don't have it, they will order it. You can also get more information about Dr. Ali Domar at her website, which is dralicedomar.com. Uh, 
I don't think she sells the book there, but she does uh, have lots of other information there that I think you will find helpful. Thank you for joining us today. And I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, this is pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.